Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Jonah Goldberg on the Dispatch Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media and Dispatch Fricassee and Dispatch Pudding and Dispatch This and Dispatch The Other Thing. All right, so I'm very excited. Uh, we have uh, one of my favorite guests, a guy. It's it's little disturbing uh, to admit this out loud. I have, I, have, I have known to one extent or another for over a quarter century, um, and, uh, and that doesn't even count the time I saved his life in prison. Uh, we have uh, uh, Will Salatan of Slate. Uh, welcome back to the podcast. You are the national correspondent, national political correspondent. What you used to be the science guy. What 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 are, what is your title now? Okay, so I, I was the political correspondent, and then when I wanted to stop covering politics, back when politics was boring, remember that? Yeah, um, that was awesome. I <laughs> I, uh, I was looking for another title that would allow me to sort of roam, and I I noticed the New York Times had a politics section and a national section. I was like, national's very vague, right? You never know what you're going to read in the national section. So I was like, if I call myself the national correspondent, then I can cover anything, right. which was kind of perfect. So I, that's what I adopted. Um, so, but what you're really telling us is that because you made a wish with the monkey's paw, um, because politics was boring, you made politics the way it is now and you're to blame for everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sorry. That's me. All right. So, uh, you know, uh, we're reaching across the ideological aisle here, and um, it's I, I, whenever Wait, I do John, this, I ha- you know, when you say that, Jonah, we both have aisle seats, just so everyone is clear. That's true. I mean, like if we reach out our arms, we can kind of touch fingertips or something. Um, but uh, um, I, I, I always have in 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 this climate, I kind of always have the left leaning people on the show at a disadvantage because because of my position on Trump and the absolute you know, clown car that the GOP has become, it deprives them of easy rhetorical whataboutism um, because I'm just like, yeah, he sucks or yeah, that's really bad too. But, uh, um, but you are free to attack me and my ilk as you see fit. If it, if, if it should come to that, uh, where to begin, why don't you, um, why don't, why don't, why don't we just start here so we can get out of the way. I was going through your recent archives and I, I would say, it was not deficient in the coverage of Trump things Trump uh, of late. Uh, so why don't so just for level setting purposes, why don't you give us a sense of how you see just sort of the political landscape right now? Democrat, Republican, Biden, yada yada yada, and we'll take it from there. Okay, so uh, I am guilty of being a, a Trump obsessed person. Um, I know I'm supposed to forget that he exists. It would be a lot easier for me to forget he exists if the Republican Party genuinely ignored him instead of, you know, kowtowing to him and uh, obeying, you know, he he obviously controls primaries still. People are terrified to lose his endorsement, to have him endorse the other person, to mount a primary campaign against them. Uh, And, you know, he... uh, so my view of the landscape is, yes, I would love to join you in forgetting Trump, uh, sensible Republicans, but I can't because your party is still in his thrall and uh, and Trump's getting crazier and crazier. He is a former president. He did get elected president. I know some Democrats don't believe that he did get elected in 2016. He It could happen again. I don't think so. But 
I Some would say it happened again in 2020. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and the number of those people is another reason why I'm alarmed. Like, you know, like the behavior of the, Repu- the beha- Republican Party is not behaving like a party that has genuinely left behind the craziness. And so I am seriously alarmed. It is the only con- serious conservative party in this country. And for it to still be in the thrall of this quack who is doing, uh, we can talk about some of the stuff he's doing or not, but like, it's seriously alarming to me. And yes, yes, I am one of those liberals who is still freaking out about the A word authoritarianism in the United States. So that's kind of where I am. Okay. So, uh, all fair enough. Um, I, uh, I agree the GOP can't let go of them. And uh, as someone who occasionally still takes the wet flounder to, uh, to, to Donald Trump, I, the, the reactions from including paid subscribers of the dispatch who are under normal circumstances. I love who come at me and say, I'm obsessed or I can't let him go and all this kind of stuff. Uh, I find that exhausting and, and, and a thousand percent unpersuasive. If he were playing golf and, uh, or building houses, you know, for habitats of humanity, um, or just being invisible and Republicans weren't reorienting themselves to in that weird space between abject head past the sphincter ass kissery and, uh, and anti anti Trumpism, uh, then he wouldn't be relevant, but he's, he's corrupted and distorted the party. And so I think it's fair game to still talk about him. Uh, including from a conservative perspective, but from my point of view, there's only so much more you can say, you know, you have to wait for new events. Otherwise it just seems like you really can't get past them. The only place I'd really disagree with you in there is where you say he's getting crazier because one of my staple positions is, is that it's that everything he does is consistent with the man that I saw five years ago. It's Aesopian, right? He, was he was the scorpion who's going to sting the frog that is the GOP or the United States five years ago. And I just don't think, you know, it's like the people who said, oh, well, January 6th was beyond the pale. It was beyond the pale as a, as an event and as behavior for a president, but it wasn't at all consistent with the man we'd seen for the last, for the previous four years. That's my, my literally my only objection with all of that. Yeah. Okay. So I think that's true. Like it, it's the crazy part is he was a charlatan. He was a quack and then he got elected president. That was the crazy part, right? It wasn't a change in him. It was that we elected him. And then you can argue that everything since has been the same, I guess. So here's, here's where I'll get into a little bit of the news. So I follow this guy. I follow what he says so that all of my liberal followers who say, don't amplify him, you know, won't have mm-hmm. to, but of course then they click on the articles. Um, it's so, so for example, this week he does a press conference at Bedminster. He announces this crazy lawsuit against big tech for discriminating against him, essentially demanding to have his Twitter account reinstated, not in so many words, but that's pretty much what he said. And in the course of this press conference with lawyers and stuff, right? He, he outlines this, essentially a conspiracy theory. And here's who's in the conspiracy theory. Okay. It's uh, big tech. It's he's got the CDC, uh, which is conspiring to suppress what the the China the lab leak theory. Uh, Tony Fauci, uh, the Supreme Court, 
He says the Supreme Court is bending its rulings to suit the left. Now, these are a court with three. He got the guy one term gets three justices. And all he does is about those three justices and what they're not doing for him. Now, God bless them. That's vindication for them. But, you know, that's going to be the, that's going to be the quote we put on Twitter. <laughs> Will Salatin. God bless them on Trump appointees. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 this is, as you know, I, this is one of my soft spots. Seriously, like I, I like, I actually believe in judicial restraint, and I believe in that that a lot of judges who say they're going to do it do it, and I'm, I feel like I'm being vindicated, uh, and I, I'm certainly going to be vindicated if these justices refuse to hear or rule against Trump on First Amendment grounds, as they should. Um, so anyway, he's 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 attacking every institution, including the institutions that you know, arguably he's stacked. So the anti-institutionalism is, is if not getting worse, it's, it's as prominent. And I just don't see any of the Republicans who are supposed to represent institutions saying anything about this. Yeah. Again, I, I, I am, I am with you. I mean, uh, the only place I would really disagree there is, I mean, I guess there are a handful of Republicans who I think have risen to the occasion, but there are literally exceptions that prove the rule, but the, the only thing is that bothers me about this whole lawsuit is the way it's being described um, by a lot of people, as, as you just did, as a, as a First Amendment case. I don't even think it reaches like a First Amendment question. Alan Dershowitz said it was going to be the most important First Amendment case of the 21st century, which I responded, it's not even the most important First Amendment case of the, case of the 21st year of the 21st century. I mean, it's just, it'll get, it, it will not reach the Supreme Court. I, I, I can almost guarantee it because no judge is going to i mean i think ed henry's lawsuit at fox has more and, um, but um we don't need to get into that i'm in enough trouble with my colleagues over there all right so but we, all right so we've checked this box and i know i'm going to hear from listeners who say i had to stop because all it was was trump bashing even though we're only in the like the seventh minute or whatever it is but uh how do you think biden's doing I think Biden's doing fine. And by the way, I'm anytime you want to like start bashing the left, I'm 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 happy to debate that. Oh, with you. we're easing into it like a fat man <laughs> into a bath. So, so just want to tell the listeners we're getting to that stuff. Hang on there. Um, Biden is doing fine. I mean, look, Biden came in. He the the job after Trump is pretty basic, like restore order, get the government to do very basic things. You don't have to have large ideological fights at this point. You just need to like do the job, you know, vaccination, public health. He comes in at a time when there's an obvious job for a democratic president and he's doing it, you know, he's doing it as well as can be hoped. Um, so I'm, I'm happy with that. I think he's managing the party, the fights inside the democratic party reasonably well. He's not, you know, spending a lot of capital in there. He's going to let the moderates and the leftists fight it out to some degree in Congress. And, that makes perfect sense to me. Um, and he's kind of staying above it. I think the people in the White House are managing Joe Biden well in terms of when to set, when to spend his capital and when to conserve it. What do you think? Um, I, I think you're right that they're doing a lot of Joe Biden management. Um, you know, you hear, you hear rumors and chatter about how the that the staff is managing up too much and that, that a lot of them are sort of more left, more woke, whatever you want to call it. Um, that's, which explains some of the, you know, the explains some of the unforced error that was that ridiculous linkage thing with the infrastructure thing. You know, that was, a, I think that was just a straight up 
gaffe and they were smart the way they played it as if, you know, sort of, oh, we meant to do that. Like it was just like, you know, made it much less of a big deal. But it was a really weird, dumb move on his part, I thought. And um, uh, that said, all right, so I'm going to trot something out on you. Mo Alethi wouldn't take the bait. Um, and, um, but I actually believe this pretty passionately that Biden is blowing it in a very serious sense. And, and again, I'll, I'll state my priors. I want the democratic party to be more sane. I want the democratic party to still be a liberal party. That's fine. It's, I, I, it's not going to change, but to be, and there are, there are, there are people who think that the, the, the sixth seal has opened when they hear me say this, I would like to see the democratic party be more Clintonite um, and uh, more centrist because I think that would be good for the country. And I honestly think it would be good for the democratic party. And I actually think in the long run, that would be good for the Republican party because it would force the Republican party to compete over that terrain rather than doing this. Oh, look at those terrifying gargoyles over there on the far left. They're really running everything. They'd have to instead say, well, you know, we have better policies than Joe Manchin, which is just a better place for the country as well. And so the reason why I think Biden is blowing it is that from the infrastructure stuff to this whole new New Deal thing, which was always a pipe dream, to having an agenda in general that is that would be a heavy lift with 60 votes in the Senate, but is nearly impossible with 50 votes, with struggling to get 50 votes in the Senate, that he is he's taking his cues too much from the base of the party and is unwilling to pick a fight, a sister soldier type fight. He can pick it. It could be curated. It, it could be just some low-hanging fruit thing. But as we saw in the New York mayoral race, you can see in the polling, um, crime is a real issue. Um, I can make a case that liberals should be more concerned about crime than conservatives should be because crime in all sorts of exogenous and you know externality kind of ways is a regressive tax on poor people. Um, and the victims of crime, particularly violent crime, are wildly disproportionately poor people. Um, and the interruptions to social services and all the rest wildly impact poor people and Joe Biden in particular, given his lead on the crime bill in the 1990s is perfectly situated to actually pick a fight with some, you know, defund the police patsy and send a signal to his base that he's not going to go with that. And he could pick other fights about immigration or whatnot, but instead he keeps falling back on rhetoric to please Nancy Pelosi and AOC and these people. When I think that if he actually pitched all of his rhetoric at the, the median African-American voter in South Carolina, um, who is more conservative than probably anybody on Nancy Pelosi's staff or Chuck Schumer's staff or anybody working at MSNBC right now, um, that would be good for the country. It would be good for the party. And, um, and it'd be good for Biden. And I don't, and he just doesn't, he just doesn't want to do it. And I think that's bad. What do you think? So, so I agree with some of that. I, here's where I disagree. I, I don't think Joe Biden needs to say some of that stuff. Now it may be that, you know, it would help brand him with some people on the right. It may just be that we're in a time where there's less of an audience for aisle crossing, where he feels like that's just not going to get him the kind of capital that it used to get Bill Clinton you know, a quarter of a century ago. 
And so Joe Biden figures there's not much payoff. There's a cost on my side. And in the meantime, do I really need to get in the middle of the center versus left fight in the Democratic Party when I can count on that reasonably well to be resolved without me? So, for example, when money is involved, like Joe Manchin has his limits on how much money he's willing to spend in reconciliation and how much money he's willing to tax in reconciliation. And that's kind of going to drive whatever Democrats can come up with. I mean, Bernie Sanders can talk about $6 trillion. Does Joe Biden really need to come out and say that's too much? Or can Joe Biden just sit there and let, you know, Manchin and Cinema refuse? And then basically the left gets it. I think Joe Biden is letting the left vent. He's saying, you go get what you can get. And they're going to go and they're just not going to get it, right? They're just not going to be able to get 50 votes for that. So they're going to get 50 votes for something, but it might be $2 trillion instead of 6 And Biden won't have his fingerprints on that. So that doesn't hurt him with the left. He hasn't gotten involved. He hasn't gotten whatever you're talking about, some cred uh, on the center right. But maybe that's just not worth what it used to be worth. And that I find that sad because I think the market, the political marketplace is better when there's more fluidity and when there's, uh, when there's more to be gained by politicians acknowledging truths on the other side, even partway on the other side. But I wonder if that's just not where we are anymore. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, that's a good answer. I mean, it's a very FDR answer, right? FDR just stood aloof from the different squabbling factions of his coalition and let them work it out. And the difference, I mean, this is one of the reasons why Biden can't have a new New Deal, is that FDR's coalition was just insanely huge. I mean, if you look at the, the, the three elections from like 30, 32, 34, the Democrats had, by the end of it, you know, FDR had super majorities in both the House and the Senate. He had communist Jews and blacks along with Klansmen in his party. I mean, that is a diverse ideological coalition. <laughs> And um, Biden's coalition isn't that right. I mean, it's it's struggling to be a 50 percent coalition and it's got what nine, seven seats. What is the margin in the House? It's not big. And in the it's Senate, like five it's, seats at this point. Yeah. I mean, and it's like literally flipping. Literally, it's literally tied in the 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 in the Senate. And and so I take your point about not trying to win over a bunch of Republicans. Um, I don't think that's in the cards for the time being in the sense that. Any Republican that was inclined towards Biden already voted for him in in 2020. And there was this really fantastic uh, Pew survey. I wrote a column about it. Came out a couple of weeks ago, or a week ago. Oh, time's a flat circle. Came out recently uh, saying that basically the base of the Democratic Party didn't show up in any special form for um, for Joe Biden. The, the people who won the election for Joe Biden were... Uh, disaffected Republicans, liberal Republicans, married white men. Uh, Biden closed the gender gap pretty considerably um, over Hillary Clinton. And the and so the people I'm talking about empowering aren't like Republicans. It's empowering Joe Manson, Chris Coons, Kristen Cinema. I mean, that wing of the party, those guys, you know, who are up for re-election are going to have a really hard time defending even Three trillion more dollars in 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 human infrastructure, um, and the critical race theory is going to hurt them in in the swing states stuff. We can get that in a second. And I just feel like at some point Biden would have a more lasting legacy as a as a transitional president 
if he actually saved the Democratic Party from its worst excesses. And just so you know, like my, where I'm coming from on all this is I've I, I my 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 heuristic, my rule of thumb in understanding the behavior of both parties is I basically feel like both are determined to be minority parties. That's what they want to be. That's how they act. Like I ask myself, what would I do to make myself a minority party? And then I look at what the parties do and maybe not Joe Biden, but certainly, you know, a lot of the rank and file. Um, and I think the way the Democrats do it is, is less terrifying in some ways than the way the Republicans are doing it, but it neither are, are good, Bob. So, anyway, okay. So a, a couple of things, one, one thing is I want to get to distinguishing the economic issues from the cultural issues, but let me hang on to that for just a second and come back to your idea of the each party wanting to be a minority party. So I disagree with that. But my alternative diagnosis is the reason why their behavior corresponds to your theory is not that they actually want to be, each of them wants to be a minority party. It's because they're losing touch with reality, right? They're all of this, the information, the, the increasing uh, accessibility of information that we have in our time is producing not better informed people, but better access to the information you already want. So mm -hmm. under, the underlying confirmation bias is driving audience segmentation. And people are only talking to each other. So for example, when you were talking about the Biden gaffe on infrastructure, right? <clears throat> I think the Biden gaffe on infrastructure was caused by, there's a bad habit and I see it on the left. Maybe you see it more on the right. Uh, you just forget that other people are listening to you. You're so used to talking to your own people. So here I am, I'm sending a signal to my left wing. Hey, I'm with you. Don't worry. You know, I'm not going to sign this thing, this, this infrastructure deal, unless I get the reconciliation deal. And all of a sudden Republicans who are, who are in on the infrastructure deal are like, wait a second. And I, I almost think Joe Biden just like, wasn't thinking that he was also like, he had a conversation with those people. We have, we get the Oval Office, we talk, we're all friends. Right. And now I'm just sending a signal to my left flank. And I just forgot that I'm talking to those people. Anyway, uh, I think the behavior of the parties is much more like Donald Trump believes that he won the election. And when I look at polling, you know, like more than half the Republican Party, like somewhere up to three quarters of, of people who say they're Republicans in polls say that Donald Trump won the election. So that's a way of deluding yourself about being a minority party, right? You think you have the public with you and it was just that the election was rigged. And so the real numbers weren't reported. So you go on behaving this way. And honestly, Jonah, they because they won seats in Congress in the House, they have some basis for this delusion of theirs. So I think that's also happening on the left, and I, that would be my counter to your theory. Yeah, no, the, I, I, I wasn't trying to say that they. It's sort of like you know in Newtonian physics, the proper way to describe the behavior of celestial bodies is they behave as if they were governed by gravity, because we don't actually know what they're governed by. There's this sort of like little you know sort of uh, safe space you know out that you get when you, you describe things descriptively i don't think that there are a lot of democrats saying i want to be in the minority party i i find that the i was using it sort of descriptively to say they behave as if they want to be in the minority party and very rarely is that disproven i mean um i mean so Clyburn, what, what so what's one, your, one of the only guys who actually wants behaves as if he wants it to be a minor, a majority party. Right. So what's your subjective explanation of why they're doing it? If that's the objective. So I think that's a, I think part of that, that's a big part of it. What you're describing is the confirmation bias and bubble effect and the inability to 
um, recognize that your virtue signaling to your base has a completely different frequency outside of your bubble or your tribe and can be used in all sorts of ways. Like take, for example, and this, maybe this is a good segue into uh, critical race theory, which I know you're a huge practitioner in the <laughs> uh, um, uh, uh What's her name? Um, Randy Weingarten uh, declared simultaneously that critical race theory is not being taught in schools, uh, but they will defend to the death anybody, any teacher who teaches honest history um, uh, with their legal defense fund and yada, yada, yada. And then she has Ibram X. Kendi speak as the keynote speaker at this conference. Um, and as I put it in, the, in my, in my newsletter yesterday, you know, imagine if the country were really worried about post-liberal Catholic integralists taking over our public schools and the teachers union invited Saurabh Amari to come be the keynote speaker. It would send a bad signal, right? <laughs> and I think that because Randy Weingarten lives in a world where she can feel perfectly comfortable saying that Jews are now part of the ownership class, um, that she just doesn't, it's, it's sort of Pauline Kaleism. And she thinks that the way to earn back the reputation for the teachers unions, which has been so damaged in the last year is to lean into this nonsense rather than reject it. And, and so I think, I mean, I'm basically re-describing the dynamic that you're talking about. I think the only thing that's different on the Republican side is has more to do with short-term thinking rather than long-term thinking in rather than bubble thinking. It's that Trump and Trumpism, including the sort of Fox Newsmax OAN, you know, right MAGA MAGA friendly media has such a stranglehold over primaries that um and those voters who are those you know hyper uh, partisan attend you know attentive viewers and listeners that i think a lot of these republicans actually know what they're saying is stupid they know that the election wasn't stolen um but they feel like they have to say not necessarily that it was stolen. They just have to make it sound like they don't necessarily, like they're just asking questions. Right. I'm not right? a doctor. Yeah. Yeah. And it, like the, the, that ass clown who was it Clyde from Georgia, who was one of the guys barring the door from the insurrectionists on, on January 6th. He's the guy who then says, if you watch the video video, he's in video is in, <laughs> in like, stewing his own bowels, trying to barricade a door from a mob. And he says, if you watch the video that day, it doesn't look any different than a normal tourist visit, right? Either he is certifiably insane or he knows he's lying, but he feels he has to say this BS for other reasons. That's not bubble thinking. That is sort of weird captivity to a political dynamic thinking. That's just a little different than what's going on, on the Democratic side. And I do think one of the other explanations that it, one of the other factors that explains the different, the asymmetry between the two parties on this is that for all of the bubble thinking on the right with Fox media and, and, you know, right wing media and all that kind of stuff, conservatives still have to consume mainstream media far more than liberals have to consume conservative media. And almost all the conservative media that liberals consume is curated on Twitter and elsewhere or on MSNBC as the dumbest of the dumb stuff. And so they think that they extrapolate from the really dumb clip and the d clip is dumb and they think, oh, that must be what Fox is 24 seven, you know, and Fox isn't that 24 seven. 
And meanwhile, the way media covers stupid left-wing stuff is, is so often Republicans pounce on stupid left-wing thing rather than this is a stupid thing. When Republicans have misinformation and paranoia and, and crazy conspiracy stuff, it's an objective report about the craziness of these conspiracy theories and this misinformation. When liberals subscribe to the equivalent of these kinds of things, it's look how Republicans are blowing this all out of proportion, which gives a lot of liberal voters and, and liberal activists permission to think that um, they're really not that out of touch or this idea isn't that crazy. Because after all, no one I trust is actually saying this idea is crazy. Only the people I hate are saying this idea is crazy and they're exploiting it for cynical purposes. And even to this date, it's very hard to find a good liberal to admit on a TV show that defund the police is terrible politics for Democrats, not because Republicans exploit it, but because it's an absolutely idiotic idea that, and its idiocy is what allows Republicans to exploit it. Okay, so it's an, absolutely, it's an absolutely idiotic idea, just to, just to be clear. Also, it's, you know, very few people actually subscribe to it. Yeah, the ones who do are most, they're very vocal. So it creates an illusion that they are more, pro that they have more support in the Democratic Party than they do. Yeah. But, Only one question on that, and then I'll, yeah. I promise I'll stop and draw You're right that they're very vocal. But being very vocal doesn't get you invited on MSNBC and CNN at will, right? right. People made those choices, and they put them on air for an entire summer amidst rioting. And then Democrats are like, who says we're fun, you know, we're we're in favor of defund the police? Well, the very TV shows that you consider the most important have been basically sending that signal either overtly or covertly for months. And now you're like Ron Burgundy in the bear pit, you know, I immediately regret my decision. Well, it's too late at that point. Right. I'm done. Okay. So let's let's be honest about what's going on in that process of of, you know. I mean, the critical race theory is enormously complicated, and I should just say where I come from on this stuff. All right, so I am a sort of squishy, moderate liberal uh, who, I mean, liberal used to mean left. Now, it's, to my mind, it means sort of the center. Uh, like, I know liberals who are Repub uh, Republicans and former Republicans, people who believe in freedom. Uh, anyway, uh, I, I, that's where I am, but where I came from is I studied critical theory in college I must have read Karl Marx in like five different classes, Jonah. I mean, I'm totally steeped in this stuff. I sort of know where that critical theory stuff comes from. And, and so when I read critical race theory, I can see the, in the academic stuff, you know, where they get some of their ideas and whatnot. And my view about critical theory is it's enormously valuable as an analytical tool when you're trying to understand something that appears to be okay on the surface, like, you know, we just bought a TV in our house. Like, oh, it's great that you can get a TV relatively inexpensively setting aside the semiconductor crisis. Um, but the point is, I don't pay attention to the fact of what the wages are for the, you know, the, so the whole international economy. And so Marx was really good about this stuff. Look for hidden effects that you, you, the comfortable person don't notice. Um, and so I, I believe that that's useful also in the context of race. You should be aware, you should, we should pay attention to examine what's underneath these ostensibly like credit systems, right? If you, the, and in, in this country, there's like a 10, tenfold gap in wealth, uh, by some measures. Um, and that, so when you, when you talk about who can get credit and who can't, and what are the downstream effects of that on opportunity, that's all totally legit stuff to look at. It's important to look at. However, 
what's going on on TV and it's going on on a lot of the media is white guilt, right? And the white guilt is just like a frenzy, right? And instead of, you know, thinking through, okay, we've had, you know, these, these generations of discrimination in various changing forms, they're, they're changing over time, but how, how does that affect things today? How can we, uh, how can we counter that? How can we restore the American dream? How can we restore economic mobility given the effects of that? Um, how can we change policing so that we don't have people, we don't have officers making judgments based on what color the person is? Those are all, those are all important questions, but the white guilt part of it just overwhelms all of it. So the white guilt is playing out in the form of who can we find who rep, who claims to represent racial equality? some diversity trainer, somebody who calls themselves a critical race theorist and put, you know, put them on TV or implement their curriculum or pay them $20,000 to do a speech or whatever it is. Right. And that's kind of absolving us, or we're somehow participating in alleviating our guilt. And it's just not well thought through. So you end up with charlatans or people who misunderstand or misrepresent racial history or who just themselves play on white guilt. I mean, Jonah, I got to, sorry, one little mini rant in this larger rant. It drives me insane to see people who claim to represent critical race theory talking so much about whiteness and white guilt and what you as a white person are responsible for. The, the origins of critical race theory is it's not about what any one person feels. It's not about your guilt. It's not about, you know, whether you're personally prejudiced. It's about things that are built, a systemic disadvantage that is built into an ostensibly neutral system are possibly by, by, you know, built up discrimination. So all of this stuff about white guilt is not what was originally taught in critical race theory. Whether it's now critical race theory is sort of a political question in terms of what we call it. But the white guilt stuff is out of control and is not even helping address the real problems. Yeah. I, look, I mean, you're, it's like, you're my spirit animal on this. Um, I, there's a, that, that old joke about how there's nothing wrong with supply side economics that wouldn't be fixed by dividing by 10. Uh, that's my view about the critical race theory stuff. I agree with you. Like it's the structural racism. This is the thing that I've been ranting about this for a while. Like the whole argument about institutional racism or structural racism is that it's supposed to explain pernicious or undesirable discrepancies in outcomes when, uh, there is no conscious discrimination going on. Right. I mean, that's the, the whole point. It was like disparate outcomes even though they can't find anybody in the hiring process who's a bigot. And, you know, let's, let's, let's look at the systemic reasons for why we have these kinds of things. And it's, and the problem is, is that if you now we've gotten to the point where if you criticize the conclusions that people take from the institutional or structural racism arguments, that de facto makes you a racist, you know, then they call you a racist. And I, I find Ibram X. Kendi's argument, so sinister, right? I mean, I've been saying for 20 years that one of the most fascistic things said on every day on a college campus is if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. And he explicitly says that unless you agree with him on a host of policy approaches, including reparations, then you're a racist. And it doesn't matter what your bigots are, what, what your what your um your personal views towards black people are. Non-racism is not a safe harbor. You have to be anti-racist and anti-racist is basically synonymous with shut up and agree with my program, regardless of what it costs or, what, or its efficacy or its merits. Um, 
And that's just, that's, that's cultural bullying and it's exploiting white guilt. I agree with you on that. And, um, so I don't, I'm in just violent agreement with you on this. That said, um, I, just for the record, I got steeped in this critical stuff too, but from the feminist perspective, because I was sort of the Rosa Parks of gender integration and went to an all women's college. And, um, uh, I take that back. Rosa Parks was a great heroic woman. I was not a great heroic person for going to all women's college, but, um, uh, I had probably more, cl more classes on Foucault than I did on the Federalist Papers and the whole cr critical feminist theory stuff I got drenched in. And, and I agree there's some merit to that stuff. There really just is. Um, and I, I think though the fight over whether or not critical race theory is being taught in schools or not, or how much it's taught in schools and all that kind of stuff misses the point. What is being taught in schools is white guilt and, and what, and also racial essentialism and, uh, maybe not in a genetic sense, but in a cultural sense. And I think that's pernicious. And I have a lot of sympathy, sympathy for parents who don't want that crap talk in schools and for people who say well it's not being taught right now well okay fine let's make sure it doesn't start being taught in schools and so i, I actually think this is a very good issue for republicans they're I, they are determined to make it into a stupid issue it seems because this whole might be a minority party thing but on the broad outlines i think the republicans are more right than wrong and the democrats are more are, are more wrong than right on all Okay, so I agree with you that within a certain space of what you're describing, Republicans are more right than wrong, but it's a small space. Um, uh, but I, I, anyway, this I podcast wanna... is called the Remnant, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I don't think this is a huge earth-shattering problem. But let's go back to the spirit of what you originally said. Like, let's just be let's be candid about. I'm talking to myself here about where we're wrong or my side is wrong. By the way, I've like found this to be enormously liberating. Like I wish like years ago I had come around to this idea when you're wrong about something and someone shows you you're wrong, just let go of it. Really. It, I yeah. found I've like, uh, my life has gotten so much better since I've done this. Then I move on to something where I might be right or I can work something out. So in I this agree, case, okay. So the white guilt stuff is just, is out of control. And once we name it, then we can be a little more sensible about now, should we really be having Ibram Kendi do this thing? Or should we have this other person who actually has a, a more constructive, uh, practical approach? Um, so uh, I would I would agree with a lot of what you said, especially about um, the uh, the white guilt. And here's here's a here's a proposal. I, and I, I can't really implement this because I don't know where I don't I don't have the solution, but I think I can identify what the direction is. Can we please stop using the R word racism to describe two different things? One of them is personal prejudice and the other is systemic disadvantage. Okay. The point about systemic. So we use this term systemic racism, but all people on the right here and people in the middle, frankly, white people here is the racism part. And they think in their mind, it's about them, that they're guilty, that they have biases. And to be honest, we do have, we do have biases. Everybody has unconscious biases. Um, so I believe in that stuff, but that's not what systemic analysis is supposed to do. So when, when the term systemic racism keeps being thrown around and it has really sort of blossomed in the last couple of years in my mind, in the democratic presidential primaries of 2019, 2020, that's when the term, you know, the white candidates started adopting it. And it just clouds, it just conflates the distinction in people's minds. 
So you have Mike Pence running around saying, they, they, the Democrats, are calling you, white America, racist. And that's not what people who think that think about this stuff intelligently are trying to do. They are trying to say, it's not about you being racist, right? It's about it's about racial disadvantage being built into the system. And I don't know what the term is, but we need some other term for the systemic factors that doesn't trigger A, the guilt, and B, the reaction to the guilt, which is, no, I am not a racist. Don't say that about me. Therefore, you're lying about everything. No, I think that's a really good point. I, I really do. Because um, um, I think... I think it's going to be very, very difficult to do that, but it would be very, very good to do that <laughs> um, because the first of all, the, the vocabulary isn't there. And second of all, you're the incentive structure for radicals and also sort of virtue signaling kind of prominent white liberals to not make that distinction is just so strong. Um, and you know, it's like, I keep thinking about Megan McArdle make, has made this point that if you actually take the arguments about, you know, institutional or systemic racism or sexism seriously. And again, I agree with you. You should take them seriously. I think they're, they're, they're often wildly exaggerated. And I think that it is, is, it is an outrageous slander against the country to say that we have made no progress on race. I just think that is just factually insupportable. That's false. And, it's just false. Yeah, yeah it's okay. it just it's magical thinking, you know, and pernicious but magical thinking, um, to say that like things haven't gotten better since Jim Crow, you know, when, uh, by any measure, they've gotten better. I mean, it's 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 sort of like when Donald Trump said at the Republican convention in 2016, blacks have never ever 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 had it so bad as they do today. <laughs> just like, come on, dude. Um, but uh, um. But you know, anyway. So Megan's made this point that if you if you if you agree with the 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 fundamental argument of this stuff, then there are all sorts of other interesting play, ways to apply it as well. Uh, I would argue that there are there are institutional and systemic biases against believing Christians in this country, in a lot of elite institutions. Um, there certainly are against conservatives in a lot of elite institutions. That doesn't make it bigotry per se, right? Um, I mean, I think there is there are examples of anti-Christian bigotry in elite circles, but I think for the most part, it has more to do with cultural cues and um, and 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 circles of relations from elite institutions and that kind of stuff and network effects. Um, I always remember Ramesh making this point about, uh, you know, the. Pro, the signals that the Republican Party sends when it gets too overt into the Christianity stuff, um, and he says, "Look, imagine you're like a a local Indian American businessman, um, and you're invited to some country club for a Republican, you know, county meeting, and the first thing they do is all join hands and give thanks to our Lord Jesus Christ." Now, I got no problem with people who do that. Some of them are my close friends, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. But when you do it at a Republican meeting and you're this Hindu guy, you might not think it's bigotry going on, but you might think it's exclusionary. You might this just isn't the kind of club for me. And I think that kind of thing exists in all sorts of institutions in different ways. Um, and it's not just 
racist white right wing bigotry and sexism at work, but the way our cultural institutions operate and a smart conservative could make this case um, on all sorts of levels by buying into this stuff and, and, and using it as the tool that it's supposed to be. But that's not going on either. And I can't remember why I brought this up in the first place now. Well, now you're bringing me back to the Bill Clinton model. So, you know, look, we, we don't want to be presidents who are diddling interns, but uh, setting that aside, what Bill Clinton was really good at was understanding how people who weren't in his political party thought. And that's partly because he was from an era when a Democrat could get elected governor from Arkansas. And you, 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 you had, you, there were these purple areas where you had to learn to talk across the aisle to people who see things differently. So if you're dealing with something as fraught as race, you need to figure out a way to speak not just to your audience of people who, you know, are enthusiastic about, you know, repudiating their whiteness or people who are angry about the, the history of racism in this country and also speak to the people uh, on the other side, like white people who are not aware of this stuff. They don't get pulled over by the cops. You know, they're, they're you know, I mean, there are, there are some of these disparities that a lot of white people just don't pay attention to, right? That's yeah. what, and it's the term, we use the term white privilege to describe this. One of the stupidest phrases you could come up with to describe what is otherwise a fairly straightforward phenomenon. And, oh, it doesn't happen to me. Therefore, I don't, I didn't know it existed. Um, so there has to be a way that you can speak to people to increase awareness and to make them receptive to your, your argument that there's a problem they haven't paid attention to without triggering, you know, you're accusing me of something. And right now, so right now, the, the whole conversation around race is being conducted in a way that uh, encourages uh, accusation, feelings of guilt, feelings of self-defense and denial, which is exactly the opposite of what we need. All right. So Salatin for DNC chair. Uh, <laughs> I'm out in two hours. <laughs> uh, you have a better chance of being DNC chair than I do of being RNC chair. I mean, I just will put that out there, but, um, all right. So I mean, again, it's sort of violent agreement on this. I mean, I, I think there's an enormous, I mean, I know there's an enormous amount of social science that says that calling non-racist white people racist turns them is more likely to turn them into racist. And, and I think the single worst thing that could happen in this country. I mean, I don't know, like nuclear war would be bad, you know, but um, one of the worst things that could happen in this country is to openly encourage white people to think of themselves as a white identity and to ask white people to embrace identity politics categories the way we do for non-white people. I just think that would be pernicious. And actually, so that raises a, a good segue to another topic I want to ask you about. Um, one of the reasons why I think that would be so terrible is because, and you can look it up, white people wildly outnumber black people in this country and brown people in this country. It's funny how you're not allowed to say yellow people, and I understand why, but it's like, <laughs> like we should, it's not a consistent thing, right? Whereas we talk about black people, we've even capitalized it now, we talk about brown people and communities of black and brown communities, and then when you talk about Asians, you're like whoa can't, can't use that color scheme um which i just think is again i understand it for historical reasons but I, I never thought about how it's sort of weirdly inconsistent regardless white people are majority ethnically in this country and if they all start voting basically on this idea that all politics is about 
tribal ethnic power. Um, that would be very bad for the country, and it would be very bad for all of these minorities who encourage these modalities of thinking. And you can respond to that, but the reason why I'm using it as a segue is um, the left is really obsessed with majoritarianism when it comes to our politics, right? Electoral college bad, Senate bad, um, uh, you know, doing having 50 state elections bad. Um, and I wonder if you have any thoughts on the disconnect between the structural anti, the structural majoritarianism of liberalism today, which I think has been almost fetishized and the disconnect between that and the actual reluctance to follow majority opinions on all sorts of public policy things from voter ID to, uh, racial quotas, um, to abortion, the democratic party and the Republic, neither democratic party nor the Republican party actually represent the consensus majority view on a host of issues in this country. But when it comes to voting, the democratic party is obsessed with majority rule above all things. And I think it's a weird disconnect. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm sympathetic to majoritarianism, but really, I mean, I mean, I'm basically at this point in my life, I've come around to what I call negativism and somebody might tell me this is, you know, uh, Edmund Burke or something, if I had properly read Burke. But the point is, I believe in negative, negative things. I believe in negation by checks and balances, for example. So it's not that the majority always knows what's right. The majority does terrible things throughout history. Um, but what you, it's better that politicians be constrained by having to get elected, uh, every, every couple of years or so. Um, so it's, it's just that the majority can be a check on an elite that's out of control. And conversely, you need institutions to check crowds and that sort of thing. So I'm sympathetic to majoritarian, like, for example, it's not, I agree with Democrats who say it's not healthy that we now have structural biases in the distribution of the population so that Republicans can maintain power, um, uh, with, you know, through the Senate and the artifact of, you know, although I told, what I tell my liberal friends is move to Wyoming, you know, mm -hmm. you, you, you can, you can shift the Senate right now, but you can't get people to move from Washington DC and New York to my, to Wyoming, uh, cause they'd rather, you know, be around their friends in the bookstores than, uh, than, than actually move politics. Um, so anyway, the, the, also for the same reason, I'm sympathetic to majoritarian arguments about, um, about, uh, redistricting. Uh, I don't, what I don't want, I, I, I don't want districts drawn to allow a party to control 52% of the seats in, in a legislature when they only get 46% of the vote. And that happens, that's way too easy. But there again, it's a negative argument, right? It's that I'd rather have a commission come in because I don't want, I want something intervening, a guardrail intervening in between the state legislature and the districting process that then decides who controls the next state legislature, right? You don't get to make your own decisions. So I'm sympathetic to all of that. But I think you're talking about something else. You're getting into cultural issues where mm -hmm. the left is wrong, is just not on the side of the majority. And there, I am not a majoritarian. I think that um, discrimination against gay people was wrong back when it was popular. Um, and it was important to figure out how to uh, overcome that, how to change the majority, which eventually happened, or to prevent the majority from, from doing its worst. Um, but on some other issues like crime today, I just think liberals are out of touch with what the actual majority thinks. And not just the white majority, but the black and brown majority. Um, and so one of the things that's going on in New York City and other places is there's, uh, I mean, Matt Iglesias makes this argument a lot, and I think he's right. 
Black and brown people in the Democratic Party are more culturally conservative than a lot of white liberals. And the white liberals don't want to admit that. But if you actually follow where the party is, the base of the party, all colors, you would end up with a more socially conservative position. So I think that's this gets back to the distinction between the economic issues, where I think the left is more popular than the center admits, and the cultural issues where the left is less popular than they admit. Yeah, so I mean, I, this is sort of old saw on on this podcast, but the, the I was Josh Krauschauer was talking about the I've talked about this a bunch um, that one of the places where there's asymmetry between the Republican and Democratic Party is that for all the Republican Party's faults, I think that the average young activist would do better passing a Turing test about what liberals believe than the average young liberal would in passing a Turing test about what conservatives believe. And, um, and that just doesn't, and I don't mean that about like knowing what, what I think about an issue. I also mean, it's not just a right left thing. It's an up down thing. It's what like, their own rank and file democratic voters actually believe seems otherworldly to a lot of them and um and they don't want to see it and the example i often use on here is latinx where <laughs> like like go find me a latino person or hispanic person or a mexican american person all of these labels are ones that they prefer to latinx by orders of magnitude by like several standard deviations statistically um, just as a, just a, as an experiment, the next 10 clearly Hispanic or Latino people you meet in the course of a week, ask them what they think of Latinx. And they'll all, I guarantee you, at least nine of them will shrug. What is that? Or they'll say it's stupid or yeah, I don't like it or it's not my preferred term. But, you know, unless you are at an event at the Met, or at the UN, or um, at the at, at the at a meeting uh, or the faculty lounge at, at an Ivy League school or at an AFT conference, normal everyday American ethnically Hispanic people don't use Latinx. It is a shibboleth that is used entirely to signal to elite activists within the party, um, and. And to elite journalists who are de facto a activists within the party. And when I hear Elizabeth Warren running in the primaries talking about intersectionality and, um, and LBGTQI, you know, it goes on with all these letters. It's like someone has convinced a lot of these top level Democrats that this is actually reaching real voters when in fact it is signaling to real voters. I have no idea who these people are or what they're talking about. <laughs> and, um, and so I think that that's a huge problem for the Democrats is that it's, they're, they're sort of all getting high smelling their own farts in the faculty room <laughs> rather than actually talking. I mean, that was what Bill Clinton was good at. He could walk into a bunch of construction with a, into a room full of construction workers and talk to them about their lives in real ways. I don't think Elizabeth Warren can do that except maybe on economic issues. I don't think that, I, Kamala Harris, the way she talks about this stuff is she comes across to me as a particularly unctuous director of HR at a small liberal arts college. Um, and 
that just general language stuff. It's so funny because like, remember 10 years ago, all that garbage with George Lakoff about how to restructure right. language to win reality and all this kind of stuff. That was all done that he won that battle when it came to like the, the, the office of diversity studies at, you know, Bryn Mawr or something or Brandeis university where they've just outlawed the word trigger because it's triggering to people who need trigger warnings. But by doing so, they absolutely lost the war to speak English to like American people. And I think it's a real problem. Yeah, I, I agree with this. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's, the Latinx is a pretty good example of it because of the obvious, because they, you know, you can look at polls right. <laughs> and the Latinos, Latinas, like that. No, I don't, I don't use that term. That's not my thing. So you're, you're essentially foisting this on them. It's a form of like, it's a cultural imperialism almost, or, I mean, it, look, it's just condescending. Let's just use plain language. People, yeah. if you believe that the, that people are people and that everybody's entitled to dignity, stop condescending. Stop like using language that they wouldn't use for themselves and like pretending that you're a vanguard and all that stuff. So, I mean, the one you're the, the gay stuff is kind of a, a hilarious illustration of this, the endless addition of letters, right? There was, there was gay, there was lesbian and gay, there's bisexual, lesbian and gay, there's LGBT. Oh, but we got to add the Q. But then there's like, uh, Jen Psaki at the White House saying, I believe it was LGBTQI. And I was like, wait, what's the I again? Cause you have to keep track of this stuff. Thank God they brought in the plus because the plus is going to stand in for the rest. But now you've got six letters. And Joe Biden said it in one of his speeches the other day, LGBTQ plus. And he's stumbling over it, not just because Joe Biden has trouble speaking English sometimes, but because like this is not how Joe, Joe Biden is a normal person. That's one of his virtues. So one thing Joe Biden could do is just sort of try to bring the Democratic Party back to normal language where I talk to you on the level. I don't have to make end endless references to six different consonants or whatever. So I, you know, I have a, uh, I know somebody who, uh, runs or used to run an organization that had the phrase sexual minorities in it. Okay. That has too many syllables, but it's two words and it's mm -hmm. whatever you want to include in there. Cause we're talking about a small percentage of the population. You were talking about white, you know, straight is like an overwhelming percentage of the population. And then you have a bunch of folks who for various reasons, and I believe they're just born that way, are, don't fit into that. And that's fine. And they should be treated equally. But you don't need to add, you know, an entire alphabet to reference every single one of them. There should be an umbrella term for people who don't fit the cishet mold, right? And and we use that just as a shorthand, and that would be just a normal way of speaking. All right. So obviously, I am hunting and pecking like a Chinatown tic tac toe chicken to find things that we're going to really disagree on. So uh, let's close out by talking about the. Uh, bridge building, uh, consensus building issue of transgender stuff, um, and uh, and and for listeners who don't know, like you brought up the, the the bigotry against gays, you were very aggressive early on, forthright and vocal on all of these issues going back twenty years, and um, and I think the world came to your position, the majority came to your position because you weren't in the majority when you first started writing about this stuff. And so my own view, just to level set, is that I'll treat anybody with respect and dignity um, as a default until they prove to me that they deserve something else, right? And so, you know, Deirdre McCloskey is a, is a sort of intellectual hero of mine. She 
is a she now. She wasn't always. And I refer to her as she, and I respect that. And I talk when I talk to her, all that kind of stuff. That's fine by me. Um, you know, that said, um, I mean, if, if Latinx is a piker compared to this birthing mother, a birthing person garbage, right? Um, the signal that sends, I mean, just go find me some black ladies who don't work in highly ideological professions who like the idea of, of erasing the concept of motherhood and replacing it with this very breeder connotation concept called birthing person, right? It was just incredibly dumb. Um, but uh, I think that, you know, you, what, your, your old beat used to be about, you know, just follow the science, follow the science, follow the science. And I don't want to like catch you in a bad place, but the idea that biological sex isn't a real thing, according to science, is garbage. It is a real thing. Now, if we want to, as a culture, decide that people who want to behave as if they weren't born with a certain biological sex um, are not that biological sex, I think there is room to do that without uh, using language like uh, men can have babies too or any of that kind of stuff because they can't. And, and I particularly think that the sports stuff is radioactive for the left in ways that a lot of people on the left do not appreciate, but we can get to that in a second. So tell me where you come down on that. What's your response to all that? Okay. So my overall response is that conservatism is always in the process of retreat, right? I mean, the, the, the world changes. Conservatives say, Hey, but this is good the way it is. Why should we change it? And sometimes they win, but mostly over time things change. And so conservatism is always about moving the playing field. And this is an extremely small playing field we're on right now, right? Like there's been a complete collapse of conservative resistance to uh, treating gay people equally. And so now we're into trans and we're specifically into, I mean, it's almost shocking how fast this stuff has moved. Not just that we moved to trans, but we have the, re the Republican candidate for governor of California is transgender. Now, now we're down to uh, can, can uh, people who were born male uh, uh, change their sex assignment. I'm, I still have to remind myself of the terminology and, and uh, uh, then compete in girls sports. This is a vanishingly small number of cases we're talking about, right? So it's where conservatives are fighting. And to me, the, the larger story is just that they're, they, they've retreated to this very small issue. Having done that, um, you know, at some point, liberals or progressives should say, we won, we won, we got, you know, and now we're just arguing about these marginal cases where maybe we should make some concessions uh, because, um, you know, there are, it, it, look, it's complicated. People are born with one biological sex and a different orientation, a different, um, you know, I mean, the brain is part of the body, right? You, mm -hmm. you, you believe you're a girl, you were born a boy, but you believe you're going, you think like a girl and you want to change your body to conform to that. Okay. That's just a real thing that happens, but these are by definition, abnormal cases. So part of the way we need to sort this out is restoring an understanding of normality, right? Normality is here's like, for example, here's the language. Language is he and she, right? Some people don't want to be he and she. You can have pronouns. That's fine. But it's also just fine to use the normal term for, you know, an overwhelming percent of the, of the population. And it's just understood that it will be some exceptional cases in which you will interject. Oh, by the way, that isn't how this person defines him or herself. Um, and if some people want to be a them, they can be a them, but we don't have to change the whole language. When you get to sports, 
That's where conservatives have found what they always look for, which is a way of making the majority feel disadvantaged by, an, by cases, even a very small number of cases, in which this very tiny minority of transgender people can be construed as you know, having an advantage over them by being born male and then competing in a girls sport. I, I, I'm with you so far, except for the construed, which makes it sound like this is some, you know, like debatable point. If you are bio- if you were born a biological male in a lot of sports, you are just simply going to have a significant advantage over women. Yes. Yes, okay. that's true. So it's not and- construed. It's a real thing. Yes, right. it's a real thing in a really small. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think we're dealing with a very small number of cases. And, you know, I, I don't really know exactly what, what rules you would draw up. I mean, it would affect so few people. Um, yeah, uh, I, I, yeah, I think if you, if you cannot show what, what there, but okay, so let me come back to my touchstone lately. My touchstone, mm-hmm. well, number one, liberalism, number two, facts. Um, in, here we should go with facts, right? We, there should be some objective test of whether you are eligible to compete. You don't get to compete in the sport if you are taking a drug that enhances your performance to a degree that nobody else can keep up with. And you shouldn't get to compete in it. Uh, if you're, say, you're born male, you go through whatever chemical processes so that you are more female, you should uh, have to show that you are not chemically uh, in uh, better equipped, or maybe in some other way, right? Your, mm-hmm. your bone structure. There should be an objective test, at, beyond which, if you are if you are too good, if your numbers are too, are too strong, you can't compete in the women's bracket. Um, and I, I don't. I think again, it's a very small number of people, but I think that would restore people's faith that um, that it's that unfairness isn't being isn't being allowed. Yeah. It's so still, yeah. So I look. I mean, I, I take your point that we're talking about a tiny minority of of cases and people. I guess here are the 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 couple places where I think we would have disagreement of to some extent is one. Um, the fact that it is so. Let me start this way. At some point, you said some people are born this way, and. I believe that some people are born this way. I certainly think it's true about homosexuality that some people, whether it's genetic or congenital or whatever it is, something happens in the wiring really early and it's there and it's real and it should be respected. And, and, and that's it, right? We, that's fine. I do not believe that the explosion in, in, uh, various gender identities is grounded in the same biological reality as homosexuality is. I'm not saying that some aren't. I mean, some clearly, I, I think some percentage of them are. But, you know, what, what was it? Facebook the other, you know, a couple of years ago had 56 genders. That's all cultural stuff. That is not biological, scientifically quantifiable stuff. And the mere fact that so many people are emerging all at once claiming these, you know, uh, non-binary sort of uh, states suggests to me that it is a little bit like a tulip craze, that there is something going on in the water. Um, I'm not trying to denigrate everybody who says they're new or whatever, but like I have a friend who has kids in a very elite school in California, and they asked the kids during their sexual awareness week, but it was like some identity politics thing. They said, okay, 
they asked his son, do you like girls? And as you may recall, for heterosexual boys of a certain stripe, when you're 10 years old, the correct answer is either you no, or I don't know. Right. And so this guy's kid said, I don't know. And they said, the teachers at this very expensive school said, oh, so you're questioning. And I find that kind of stuff grotesque. I don't think that like we should be having schools mucking around with people's gender identities at that age. Um, but you may be right that we're talking about a very tiny number of people, but I think some of this is, has to do with cultural signifiers and less to do with like your arguments about homosexuality do not apply one for one to a lot of the transgender stuff I would just, or non-binary stuff. I just believe that. Um, the second point is the fact that they are such a minority. We are talking about a group of people that is smaller than the number of, of homosexual, homosexuals in this country suggests to me that bending the entire culture to their sensibilities into, and when I say the entire culture, I mean, including how we talk about science and medicine, um, at a, at an elite level, you know, there's not just conservatives who are, you know, conservatives are taking this bait, but the place where I hear most of this stuff comes from, like, I follow for reasons having to do with original sin, NARAL's Twitter feed. You know, and they are way out on the bleeding edge of this stuff, as are like the American Federation of Teachers and all these other elite liberal institutions. And so this is sort of part of my problem with your argument is as a political matter. You can't have elite institutions, cultural, you know, people who have the commanding heights of the culture from Hollywood and higher education to K through 12 education um, to leading figures in the Democratic Party signaling that they endorse all of this stuff. And then say, oh, you stupid Republicans, we're only talking about a tiny number of people. Like Republicans take the bait because, the Repu because Democrats put it out there. And you end up, that's what creates a lot of these culture war kind of fights. And lastly, cultural signifiers matter, right? What, what you put out there matters. We, you know, your side of the aisle more than mine spent 20 years, 25 years with all this Title IX stuff. My wife, you know, wrote the only critical book about Title IX in sports. Um, convincing men in a glorious and, and honorable way, which my wife does not disagree with, convincing men to be just as proud of their daughters for excelling at sports as their sons. That was a huge liberal cultural achievement. And now anybody who says, I don't want a someone who was born a guy competing against my daughter in a race, the immediate response is to say that person's a bigot. That strikes me as a massive cultural stumble, even if we're only talking about a handful of cases. Okay, so I'm not supposed to agree with you anymore in this podcast, but I'm going to agree with you about the bigot part. Um, you know, that is, a, that is a clumsy reflex that the left has developed. Anybody who disagrees with me is a bigot. And I think it's kind of, I mean, it, it has been politically advantageous in, in silencing some debates, but I don't think it's constructive at all in moving the culture, which is what progressives should be doing when they're right. Um, so I agree with that, uh, about the distinction between homosexuality and transgender. Uh, I, I think there's some truth to your point there in the sense that, so I, a few years ago, I was doing a debate about same sex marriage and I was representing what I was calling a conservative case for same sex marriage. And one of my points was homosexuality is actually just like heterosexuality. Bear with me. Um, there are two fundamental orientations towards men and towards women, right? That's always been true. It was true and it's been, it's always true of heterosexuality. 
And you can think of homosexuality as a situation in which an orientation towards women is born into a girl or an orientation towards men is born into a boy. You can debate about whether it's born, whether it's, you know, in the womb, whatever the heck it is, but it's there from very early on and it happens. And you don't have to think about it as something perverse. It is a natural thing that is just exists in a slight, in a different combination. It's a two by two matrix, your, your orientation and your sex, right? It's very straightforward. When you get into transgender, things get much more complicated. Now you're saying, hey, it's not just two, it's three, four, five, 56, whatever it is. And, and I understand why people feel like, that. I mean, that is a kind of chaos. I don't think it's a particularly life, you know, earth shattering form of chaos. I think we can manage this, but I understand the distinction. And therefore it's good to reintroduce some kind of an, some kind of order. And so this is a job for conservatism, right? What conservatives need to do is figure out where to stand intelligently and justly in any, in any, you know, cultural situation that is changing. Um, so it is, seems perfectly reasonable to me for conservatives to say, you know, let's have some rules, for example, about competition in sports that are based on similar rules to what we have for performance enhancing drugs or other kinds of unfair physical advantage. Um, and they can draw that up. That's not obviously what's happening, right? What's happening is, Hey, we need a cultural issue. We dropped all the gay stuff. So now, and we don't want to be anti-trans, we, we want to be inclusive, but let's find you know, a, a dozen cases around the country where uh, a, a boy became a girl and is competing in girls' sports, and then that's to the disadvantage of these girls, and there's lots of parents of daughters, so we can get them all riled up over this case. You know, I, I, again, it just feels to me like, uh, like cheap politicization, um, but, but the solution to that, I would agree, is to find an objective measure that people can, can feel is fair and based on, based on science and not based on political correctness. Yeah, I think that's all fair. The only pushback I would give you is I think you're falling into a trap, which I fall into often as well, um, of because you see sort of the political equivalent of ambulance chasers swarming an issue. And again, I, 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 I'm guilty of this often too. You then think the issue is contrived. And, um, but the you know the thing that caused the ambulance to rush to the scene is real in this analogy, and it's sort of like as with the CRT stuff. I think one of the reasons why I will stipulate entirely that there was an enormous amount of sort of political consultant astroturf money and energy going into the CRT thing, but that doesn't make the authentic feelings of a lot of these parents manufactured. It just means that the reason there are cameras there is kind of manufactured okay. and maybe, and maybe there'd be, there'd be fewer parents showing up if the cameras weren't there and they hadn't heard about this because it's being amplified by the, the political ambulance chasers, but it's a real thing. Same thing with the transgender stuff, this kind of stuff really, I mean, it just, it pushes people's buttons in a real way that I think there's a tendency among liberals to think that anything that riles up conservatives was is is inauthentic because they don't like the people egging it on but like the tea party was an authentic real thing even if a bunch of grifter political consultants ruined the whole thing and man magnified it and all the rest and so i just think that that some of these issues as cultural issues are really significant and i think we have moved into an era where economic issues no longer have the salience that they once did and it's cultural issues in one way or another for as far as the eye can see Okay, I, I think that's true, but let me ask you this question. 
to what degree would your objections be appeased and to what degree could the country be brought together or we could move forward if, if liberals, progressives, Democrats, whatever, instead of saying, you know, that's all BS, you know, uh, boys competing in girls sports under transgender or, you know, you know, complaining about diversity training, complaining about critical race theory, instead of saying it's all BS, if they just said, um, you know what, that, that's, that's a rare, these are rare cases, but when they happen, they're wrong. And, and that is triangulation, right? Mend it, don't end it. Uh, if they go back to the Clinton model, if, if there was just at least a token gesture of saying, you know, I, I heard of, I read about this case where in this high school where, where this student was competing in girls sports and won all the, and that's, that's, that's wrong. We need to figure out a way to deal with that. I don't want, you know, you know, Send, at the same time, sending all the signals that you are a young transgender person, you, you are valued, we, your life matters, basically don't kill yourself, right? Um, and parents should, should value their kids no matter how they are. But, you know, in this case, we need to come up with different rules. Or said, you know what? I absolutely believe in systemic, uh, systemic discrimination. I believe that we are not nearly back to where we need to be as a country in terms of equal opportunity. But this diversity training that happened in this middle school was nuts and wrong, and the white parents were falsely accused. A lot, you know. I mean, if, if the question is is how much, look, I mean, again, this is why this is this is this is why this podcast conversation that we've been having is not representative of public discourse generally, <laughs> um, and um, like the worst sin you can commit on my side of the aisle is to say the other side has a point. Right. And uh, I run into this all the time on Twitter where I allow for the humanity or for, uh, the legitimacy of an opposing point of view, even if I disagree with it. And that makes people very, very, very angry. Um, because they want to believe that the other side has no legitimacy to it, that they're all evil in every circumstance. And I think that that approach is the business model of cable news. I think that approach is the business model of the activists who uh, dominate both parties to a certain extent. And, and that gets us back to where we started is why I think like operationally, it looks a lot like both of these parties want to be minority parties because they don't actually want to talk the way normal people talk when they respect each other over a meal or a beer, which is to say, that's an interesting point. I'm not sure I can go as far as you do on this. And here's why I object to that. That kind of conversation is not allowed in, in vast swaths of the cultural high ground these days. And, and I, think, I think Joe Biden, just to bring it back to the beginning, would help himself enormously if he talked like that. If he said, look, I have lots of conservative friends. I've worked with Republicans all my life. They have a point about this, that, and the other thing. They had a point about crime in the 1990s, and that's why I work with Bill Clinton to pass the crime bill. Did it have excesses? Yes. You know, we've fixed some of those and Republicans were good about fixing some of those and yada, yada, yada. But at the same time, crime is bad for poor people. And it's not just all about race. I think in a bizarre way, honesty would be the best policy. And there are the incentive structures in both parties and on both sides of the ideological divide is to say that honesty is, is surrender. And I think it's a huge problem. So I, uh, look, I, I agree with you, but let, let me ask a larger question. Are we vanishing? Are people like you and me vanishing? Uh, you know, we are persuadables. Um, 
you would be you would be moved by Biden saying that. I would be moved by uh, by you know Mitch McConnell or Kevin, not <laughs> Kevin McCarthy, please. But you know some some like if Marco Rubio went back to being Marco Rubio from ten years ago, maybe. The point is, we are persuadable by by politicians on the other side making a gesture of candor like that. Um, but I wonder whether. Uh, they don't do it because you and I are just outliers and increasingly vanishing and or, or whether we actually speak for other people. And there is a, there is an audience for that kind of crossover appeal. And somehow structurally that audience is, is not being um, not is, is less visible than it should be. I think there is a market for it. I mean, look, that's why we started the dispatch is precisely because we thought that market was underserved and, um, and I think no offense to, to slate slate served that kind of market pretty well on the liberal side of the aisle, uh, for years, I think it's gotten much more ideological. And, and I, I think some of this has to do with, it's a systemic problem. It's, it has to do with the incentive structure of how, uh, people think you need to make money on the internet and on cable TV and, um, and how you have to hug on to a certain niche and monetize anger and intense passions. Um, but we feel pretty good about, you know, proving our business model that, that at least the market we're going for, which is, you know, we are unapologetically center, right, but we're not angry about it. And, um, uh, and we have a lot of conservative people who dislike, who disagree with me pretty passionately about a bunch of things, but, they understand that me or David or whatever, we, we come from a place of good faith and honesty. And we also get a lot of liberal readers who are actually sincerely curious about what like a smart conservative argument is. And we think that market is much bigger than what we have right now. So we're pretty bullish on the future. I think that all of the cable news networks are obsessed because they're so obsessed with the incentive structure of quarterly or hourly, you know, quarterly profits and hourly or half hourly or 15 minute interval ratings. And they're so they they that Twitter is basically the wall of Plato's cave for them, and they think it's the real world, and it has such a huge distortion effect. But I think there's an enormous market out there of sort of remnanty people on the left and the right who don't want to hate everybody and don't want to be angry all the time. But there's there are few there are too few institutions trying to make money off of those people. Well, that's heartening. I would. I hope you're right. I hope you're right. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear it's working over there. Uh, and I. I think it would be healthy for uh, publications on the left, including mine, to sort of branch into that market. I mean, I think some some folks are trying, but as you as you pointed out, structurally, there's a lot of dynamics working against it, and you really have to really have to persist. Indeed, and. Part of the reason, part of the way we're reaching out is by having uh, fun people like you on. Uh, Will, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thanks, John. A lot of fun. Okay, so Will has left the studio. Always good to talk to Will. Um, I thought it was a fun and interesting conversation. I, um, I'm pretty keen on f the feedback on this one. I, as I suggested during the conversation, I'm sure some number of people will say, oh, it was an entire podcast about Trump bashing. And that will just be a sign that they didn't listen to the podcast um, beyond, you know, the place where they got triggered. Um, but more broadly, you know, I, I thought it was, you know, kind of trying to model the behavior that, you know, we both think is is lacking out there. 
Um, so whenever I have, you know, sort of an openly liberal person on the podcast, I always get accused at least at one point or another of failing to push back on something that I had um, an intense obligation to push back on. And sometimes I, to be honest, I agree with the criticism. Sometimes, um, you know, you got to be in the moment thinking about, will this derail the conversation? Um, I think the last, you know, the last time I got this criticism was when Moa Lethe trotted out the Republicans defunded the police thing, which I agree is way too clever by half and um, not persuasive. But he, I didn't push back on it at the time because he was trying to get to a more central point. And two, I think he was just describing a talking point that Democrats had landed on rather than actually endorsing the argument. So anyway, I only bring that up because I'm curious to see what absolute failure on my part um, by letting Will get away with something um, uh, some readers, some listeners point out. And um, got a lot of great feedback about uh, the Wednesday G-File or the Mitvok epistle. Um, and so we brought it out from behind uh, the subscriber-only space. So uh, you can take a look at it there. And um, I'll be doing the ruminant again. And with that, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.